you have a Bible and would like to, please open it now to the book of Romans. Today we are continuing a message out of chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And we're going to be talking again about the struggle uh, that Christians experience in their sanctification. We're going to be talking about something I like to call Christian realism. And to have a full-orbed view of the nature of spiritual experience in the Christian life, you need not only know Romans 7, 14 through 25, but you also need to know and be intimately acquainted with Romans chapter 8, because they're both two halves of a whole. Both are true, and both are real in the experience of a Christian. Today, though, we will be looking at 7, verses 14 to 25. And uh, I don't know how many of you have ever read this passage aloud. It's not easy to read it aloud uh, because there's a lot of angst in it. There's a lot of anguish in it. It's as if Paul opens the curtains and shows us his heart and shows us the reality of his struggle which I contend is a good thing. I think the struggle is the main thing and the good thing because of the nature of spiritual experience. With that said, let's look now to the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul's not falling into the current day rage of victimology here. He's acknowledging he does it, but there's a split eye. It's almost as if Paul says, I have a split eye, not eyeball, but me. I'm, I'm like Paul, I'm, I'm split in two. Continue reading. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lives, lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself saw, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, as we come to this passage, we do so anticipating hearing from you that you would speak to us in a way that is clear, in a way we can understand, that you will help the one who speaks as well as those who listen to grasp the reality of what Paul is communicating here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that because we've been together with you, we've been together with your spirit and your word, that we will be different people after we leave this place, that change will occur in us in the deepest parts of our being. And this we pray and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, last time we met, I pretty much covered point number one in your outline. And all I wanted to add or say about that is the following. This scholars, theologians, commentators have argued not for centuries but more so in the last century about whether Paul is speaking here of a unregenerate, unbelieving person who comes into a confrontation with the law of God and begins to feel some guilt and powerlessness to be able to keep it. On the other hand, there's another group of scholars, theologians, and commentators who believe that this is Paul speaking as a regenerate person, as a Christian, as one who has been saved, as one who's been made alive by the Spirit of God and is indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that Paul's reflection here is not of a new believer, not of an immature believer, not of a struggling person who hasn't learned yet how to get out of Romans 7 and get into Romans 8. Wish I had a nickel for every book I read and every conference I went to that told me the secret of getting out of Romans 7 and landing into Romans 8. It is still a secret because nobody solved the problem. And they told me I was a carnal Christian. And that meant that I was an immature believer and I hadn't yet learned how to live the spirit-filled life. And if I would just go with them into this room and pray and get some sort of special prayer language, then I could transcend the struggle and become lifted up by the Holy Spirit and obey him. But what I have come to the conclusion of after years of study and preaching, and I probably preached 12 messages on this passage, and they're pretty consistent. I looked at them and said, well, hadn't grown at all. No, I mean, <laughs> I just they're pretty consistent. But I've come to the conclusion that Paul is speaking here as a mature believer. This is not some newbie. This is not somebody that just got converted yesterday. This is a man who has preached the gospel, served as a missionary for probably close to 30 years in his life, who once said, I am the chief of sinners. Paul discussing what it's like in his experience to be what Luther called simul ustus et peccator. I know you want a lesson in Latin, don't you? Simul, we get the word simultaneous from simul. It means at the same time, ustus, justice, righteous, at the same time, righteous, and a peccator. A peccator is a big, fat, ugly sinner. And so Paul is saying, in my Christian experience, 
looked at from one perspective, I am as righteous as Jesus Christ is. I stand clothed in Christ. And his active obedience to the law of God has been imputed to my account. I think why a lot of people don't see Paul as a Christian here is they do not understand the foundational aspects of the gospel in understanding that not only did Christ die for my sins and take the punishment I deserve, but he lived for me in order to give me a record that would pass muster. Christ makes me presentable to the Father. And that's wonderful. And so some people can't abide by the fact, oh, no, Paul would have to be making more progress in his life because they don't understand imputed righteousness, which was where I was far too long in the Christian life. Paul got it. He understood it, and he knew it. And so Paul is speaking here not as a brand-new Christian, not as a struggling adolescent as a Christian, but as a mature believer. I encourage you sometimes, if you ever get a chance, to read the book, Last Words of Sinners and Saints, but especially focus on the last word of saints. All of them believe that the best they ever did in the Christian life was a good start. That's precisely what they said. So I don't want you to over-expect, I don't want you to under-expect. But I found another quote from J.I. Packer. I, I really like J.I. Packer in many ways, wished he had written a systematic theology. He never did. He wrote something for the Anglicans. It's only about that thick, so it's not for me. But I wanted him to full blow, uh, write out an entire systematic theology. But in a conversation with a student about Romans chapter 7, Packer leaned over to the student and looked at him in the eye and said, Young man, Paul wasn't struggling with sin because he was such a sinner. Paul was struggling with sin because he was such a saint. Do you hear that? He was such a saint. Simul ustus et peccator, people who sin over and over again, become desensitized to sin. The reason for Paul's struggle was, was so intense was not because he was caught in a web of sin or because he thought of himself as hopelessly doomed to giving in to the temptations that he faced. Rather, it was because Paul lived a life so sensitive to the Holy Spirit and passionate about the glory of God that he intensely felt his sins whenever he became aware that he had committed them. Uh, a sin was not, of course, a sin in his life. He became aware that he was not sim uh, sinlessly perfect. Paul had what we would call a low tolerance for sin. I've often wondered... If you could hear people confess their sins, and we don't have auricular confession, we don't have a confessional booth, maybe we need to get one. I don't think that's such a bad idea altogether. But you can go to the, you, you have a priesthood uh, as a believer, and you can go directly to God and confess your sins. But one good thing about confessing sin is to hear people confess their sins. The more mature the believer, the bigger the list the longer the list. Why? 
because a mature believer under the scope of sanctification, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, sees and is more sensitive to the smallest deviations from holiness. A true believer's heart's desire is to please his Father by being 100% perpetually, perfectly obedient every day. And when we fall short, it grieves us. It causes anguish in our being. My dad told me one time, he said, son, if you, he said, if you're a Christian, he said, you can sin and have a little fun, but you'll never get away with it. He says, you can do sin, but believe me, by word of experience, sin will ultimately do you. You don't do sin, it does you. And so as a result of that, Paul is describing for us the reality of his Christian experience. And one of the things that I think Paul illustrates in Romans chapter 7 for us, and also in Galatians 5, where we're going to go in a moment, the Reformation principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture helps us a lot with Romans 7 because Romans 7 has resonance and echoes in Galatians 5 where he talks about the conflict between the spirit and flesh in the life of the believer. We're going to go there in a minute and look at that in some detail. But what I uh, am driving at here is that Paul understood progress differently than we do. When we think of progress, we think what? Well, the longer I'm a Christian, the less I sin. Really? Really? That's not the Christianity I know about. I have more to blush about now than I ever have more than I ever have. And so progress in the Christian life is not this ascending scale where you keep getting better and better and holier and holier, and the holier you get, the less you need to repent, the less you need to pray, the less you need to run to Jesus and save you. You just finally reach this um, transcendent plane where you don't have to need Jesus so much anymore. Does that sound right? It shouldn't. Because the deeper you go with Jesus, the more you're going to discover you need him more than you need your next breath. You need him. You see your weakness. You, go, you grow not by being raised up. You grow by going low. The first direction that the Spirit of God moves in our hearts to accomplish is humility bringing us to see ourselves as we really are, bringing us to see the reason why Jesus came is because there's no other hope. There's no hope in us. And that builds a compassion in us for unbelievers around us. It's easy to sit and judge. Who can't do that? I mean, sometimes I love judging people. It's a lot of fun. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel superior makes me stand taller. If I can chop you off at your knees, most of you, I can be taller than you and better than you. And there's a sick pleasure in thinking I'm better than you. But once the struggle begins, you're brought to reality. It's like a gut punch. And all of a sudden you begin to see it's me. It's not everybody else. It's 
me. Now, when Paul in this passage talks about, he says, on the one hand, there's sin that dwells in me, and there's the me that doesn't want to sin. He's not saying he's not responsible for his sin, but what he's understanding is that in his being, he has still dwelling in his physical body this thing called, he calls sin, he calls the flesh, and what he means by that is not meat or physical nature, but rather our fallen human nature is still present in our Christian experience. And so Paul understands that what in my heart of hearts, the real me, the one who is righteous in Jesus, does not want to sin. I don't want to do it. And yet Paul says, I do it. Am I getting an amen over there? Or an oh me. So, Paul is telling us in this passage something that is amazing. He's talking about humility. He's talking about self-forgetfulness. Packer says this. Christians, he's talking about progress through struggle, seeing themselves as travelers on the way home, they will live by hope. Hope, quite specifically, of meeting their beloved Savior face to face and being with him forever. Discerning sinful desires in themselves, despite their longing to be sin-free, and finding that in their quest for total righteousness, their reach exceeds their grasp, they will live in the tension and distress at their frustrating infirmities, Romans 7, 14 to 25. The dissonance is exacerbated as they grow in holiness because becoming more sensitive to the heart of God, they become more keenly and painfully aware of their own shortcomings. This is the heart of the paradox that Packer admits in his view of holiness. So true growth, true holiness, is growing downward first, downward growth. The Scottish scholar James Denny once said that it's impossible at the same time to leave the impression both that I am a great preacher and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. It is the same way, it is impossible at the same time to give uh, the impression both that I'm a great Christian and that Jesus Christ is a great master. So the Christian will practice curling up small, as it were, so that in and through him or her, the Savior may show himself great. This is what I mean, Packer says, by growing downward, downward growth. The life of holiness is one of downward growth. When Peter writes, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when Paul speaks of growing up into Christ and rejoices that the Thessalonians' faith is growing, then what they have in view is progress into personal smallness that allows the greatness of the grace of Christ to appear. And so Packer argues, what he intends to argue is that Christians are called to a life of habitual repentance as a discipline integral to healthy, holy living. When was the last time you repented? When's the last time you repent? I mean, really repented. Not felt bad because you got caught. Not did it because you were afraid God was going to punish you. But I mean, you got down on your face before God and genuinely 
repented. Here's what Martin, Martin Luther's first of the 95 theses nailed to the Wittenberg Church in 1517 declared. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. You know who never repents? Pharisees. You ever see a Pharisee repent? No, you have not. Will you ever see a Pharisee repent? Only when converted. Repentance. So, if I were to ask you, what are you repenting about? Well, maybe you don't know what repentance is. Maybe you need a freshening up on understanding what repentance is. Philip Henry, a Puritan who died in 1696, met that suggestion that he made too much of a repentance by affirming that he hoped to carry his own repentance up to the gate of heaven itself. Now, when you look at progress and the nature of the Christian life, in speaking of habitual repentance, I don't mean to reply that repentance can ever become automatic and uh, mechanical and our, uh, as our table manners and our driving habits are. Every act of repentance is a separate act and a distinct moral effort, perhaps a major and costly one. Repenting is never a pleasure. If you have pleasure in repentance, you ain't doing it right. Repentance is not fun. Repentance is death. That's what it feels like to die to sin. It's not supposed to be fun. Repentance in the Old Testament, shuv, is a word used in Hebrew to talk about turning. And it is turning away from sin and turning toward God. You see that in the prophets all the time. That word is used constantly to the people of Israel to turn and return to the Lord. In the New Testament, it's a Greek compound word, metanoia. Meta means to change. Noe in the Greek is the mind. And so a repentant person is somebody who comes to himself, as it were, like the prodigal, sees that he's sinning, and it comes to his mind, and then he changes his mind about his course of action, and he returns back to the Lord in confession and repentance. We read a prayer of confession and repentance. I remember the first time I was in a church that did that. I went to an Episcopal church one time with a girl. I was in high school. It's the only reason I'd go to a church. I was a heathen. And I went in and we read that uh, we haven't done, we've left undone that which we should have done or whatever. And I sat there and thought, is that what these people do? Come in this church and sit there and talk about what they, how bad they are? Little did I know, I'd be moving in with them. We are bad, but we're his, and we're loved, and we're prized. And as we find ourselves growing down, that's when the real growth takes place. That's when progress takes place. The more you repent, the more you re see your sin, the more you repent. The more you repent, the more you see Jesus. The more you see Jesus, the greater you love him and depend upon him. The greater you love and depend upon him, the more you struggle. That's the Christian life. 
And if you're living something else, I don't know about you. But I know that when Paul discusses the Christian life, this is what he's saying. Man, I just can't get you people to listen fast enough. You want like five sermons on Romans uh, 7? Yeah. <laughs> so, what is repentance? It is a personal and relational term. And that's what we're called to by the Lord as we continue in this journey. Now, as we look at our outline and we look at point two, the general principle is, and Paul has enunciated it for us, is that I discover this principle, he says, in verse 15. The good we want, we do not do. While the evil we hate, we do. My renewed self and my flesh are in a bitter, unremitting battle, renew, uh, renewing of self in the light of God's law, the flesh itself in me being hostile to God's law, and I experience what is called existential anguish. Paul does not despair here in the sense of giving up hope, but he experiences, and by the word existential, I mean in his real experience inside, he has anguish. That's part of the Christian life. But he mentions the word flesh like four times, and I thought it would be helpful for us to have another look at how this particular passage is, uh, resonates with Galatians 5. So turn to Galatians 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's in the first page of the bulletin on the top. And I want to give you Paul, who wrote Galatians, actually before he wrote Romans. A friend of mine says Galatians is a shorter version than Romans because Paul was so angry. And he, uh, he got to the point pretty quickly. But look in verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now look closely at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Does that sound like Galatians? I mean, Romans 7? Nod your heads. Yes, it does. It does sound like Romans 7. That's because it does sound like it. What Paul is telling us is that as believers, we still have this thing he calls the flesh. In the original language, it's sarks or sarkikos. And it basically is the sinful nature. And here, he is contrasting our sinful nature with the Spirit in verses 16 and 17. On the one hand, Paul speaks of the sarks, which in the older translations is rendered the flesh, in modern translations is called the sinful nature. The flesh in the New Testament, when opposed to the Spirit, does not refer to our physical nature as opposed to our spiritual nature, but to the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect of our being. How do we know that? Just look at the works of the sinful nature, the flesh. In verse 19, he mentions hatred, justice, ambition, envy. 
They have nothing to do with the physical body at all, but they have to do with the spirit, the internal man. Other works of the flesh do not have to do with the body. Therefore, the sarks is our sinful heart. It is that part or aspect of our hearts which is not yet renewed by the Holy Spirit. So all of us Christians have what is called the flesh and is somehow resident in our human bodies. And when we die, we'll no longer have the flesh. We will no longer sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but one of the greatest joys of dying, if you're a believer, let me, let me qualify, is you're not going to sin anymore. And you say, well, you know, that sounds pretty good, but I, there's some other things I'd like to do than just not sin anymore. And that just shows you that you do not understand. I, I think the greatest liberation in the world is going to be leaving the sinful body behind and meeting Jesus when we die. Absence from the body is presence with the Lord. And so when we do that, there will be such a freedom that we only tasted a small drop of. There will be a freedom that will be consumed. We will be overwhelmed. Not underwhelmed, not whelmed, overwhelmed when we see Jesus and become like him. So therefore, Paul argues in this passage that on the one hand, Paul speaks of the Spirit in this passage. And at first sight, it may seem that this is a battle between something inside us, our sinful nature, and outside of us, the Holy Spirit. But since Paul talks of each side as producing character qualities within us, and because of his language of the two kinds of desires, verse 17, it is evident that the conflict that takes place within us, therefore, the Spirit could be thought of as the renewed Christian heart, renewed by the Holy Spirit, that indwells us. Our sinful nature was there naturally before we were Christians. That's all we had. The Spirit, however, entered supernaturally when we first became Christians and has begun a renewal that is now our new nature. And so Paul refers to these two natures as the old man and the new man in places, as the old self and the new self in the book of Ephesians. So what is the main way that the flesh influences us and what is the main way that the Spirit influences us? Two times Paul talks about desires of each nature. So he talks first of all about the over desires of the sinful nature. Now those of you who are wanting some sort of support for that, the word he uses for desires in this passage is the Greek word epithumia. I know you use that word all the time, don't you? Have you been checking on your epithumia? No, you haven't. Epi means over, like overdoing it, over. Thumia means desires. The craving of the flesh of our sinful nature is the over desires of the heart. It's wanting what we want too much. 
It can be an evil thing. It can be a good thing. But we want it in a way that disconnects us from God. What uh, probably the smartest guy I've ever listened to talk about um, the psychology of the soul was a man by the name of David Pallison. David Pallison is now with Jesus in heaven, so he knows whether this is right or not. But I don't. But I like what David Pallison... Let me read you what David Pallison says. A lot of people think Tim Keller started this. Tim Keller would be the first one to tell you, I learned everything I know about preaching to the heart of man from David Pallison. Okay? So don't get all nervous and, you know, reactive about Tim Keller's name being attached to it. I happen to like Tim Keller. Some of you might have a problem or two with some of the things he said. I have a problem or two because he's not Jesus. But if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, this is Pallison, then lust, inordinate desires, epithumia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift from God. Paul, Peter, John, and James all use this kind of language where epithumia is the catch-all word for what is wrong with us. The Tenth Commandment against coveting, which is idolatrous, inordinate desires for something, also makes sin psychodynamic. It lays bare the grasping and demanding nature of the human heart, as Paul powerfully describes in Romans 7 and in Galatians 5. He merges the concept of idolatry and the uh, concept of inordinate life-ruling desires for lust, demandingness, craving, yearning, and are specifically termed idolatry. Ephesians 5, 5, Colossians 3, 6. And so there are powerful desires from our flesh. You ever been walking along and you have this thought and you ask yourself, where did that come from? Well, there's only really two sources speaking to your heart, maybe three. You, but you don't know anything. <laughs> the devil and the Holy Spirit, but sometimes the devil appeals to our flesh and something. Now, I'm going to open up and be really personal here, okay? After I do this, you'll probably say, that guy shouldn't be a preacher. I know. But, I feel that way regularly, but uh, uh, some kind of lascivious, wild, filthy, nasty thing will intrude its way into my mind when I'm serving communion or when I'm on my knees praying or when I'm studying the scriptures or when I'm just walking along minding my own business. And I mean every kind of vile thought you think anybody could ever have. And I sometimes scare myself. I say, where did that come from? That's my flesh. That's my flesh. And you know what I know? You got the same disease. You got it too. And so to understand the nature of the fight, once the Holy Spirit begins creating His desires in your life, and the flesh be begins to, cons uh, to bring about its over-desires in your life, there is an automatic conflict. Those desires, uh, Paul says, you can't do what you want to do. 
because of the power of the desires of the flesh. Now, next week, we will see how to overcome the desires of the flesh. But you're going to have to wait a week. Or you can read Galatians 5 and just keep reading because anybody who's led by the Spirit does not gratify the flesh. Uh, Romans chapter 8 will say the same thing, that we, over, we mortify, we put to death the strivings, the cravings, the yearnings, the passions of the flesh through the by work of the Holy Spirit. But you just need to understand the nature of what's going on if you're a Christian. Don't be surprised that these things will happen to you. My wife says I often uh, have a similar dream. She says that uh, sometimes in the night she will feel me punch her like in the arm. That's not, a, that's not good, is it? I mean, I'm awake half the time. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but I'll roll over and kind of pop her in the arm. And she said, I always say this, get out of here. So she asked me, why did you scream get out of here? I said, I was protecting you. I was protecting you. I said, one night, uh, I dreamed that somebody burst in our bedroom with an Uzi machine gun, and they were just letting it go, and I yanked the mattress up in front of myself, threw her across the room. So she gets up and says, what is going on? I said, I had a dream. I was taking Synthroid at the time I had to quit. Uh, it was revving me up. But I, I looked at her, and I said, uh, somebody I thought was in the room, and uh, I said, I had to protect us. Protect us? You threw me across the room. The woman was mad at me, would not speak to me for three days because of a dream. There are others, but I won't tell them. But that's the struggle we have. It's real. It's existential. And next week when we get into chapter 8, we're going to see when Paul finally comes to Romans 7.25, he thanks God in Christ. Why? Because he understands there's a way to deal with it. Understand this. In the book of Romans, there are no chapter divisions. Those were added later. So 7.25 flows right into 8. It's not as like Paul's picking up a new subject. We have it in our English Bible. Sometimes it's pretty helpful, sometimes not so helpful. But in his letter... You would have read 725, gone right into 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for who? People like you and me who struggle with the flesh. We're not condemned. Why? One of the worst things you can do, and I'll leave it today with that, and uh, one of the worst things you can do is try to base your assurance of salvation by looking inside. Don't do that. Look inside long enough to look out. Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Ten looks at Christ. And then you will have assurance of his objective work. Yes, there are evidences of the reality of salvation in your experience, and I'm not minimizing those, but don't rely on the reality of 
your experience as an indicator of whether you're in grace or not. And here's where the objective, active obedience of Christ becomes gold. It becomes gold. You come back next, next week and I'll help you. All I did today was expose you. Next week, I'll help you or we'll help you during communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is a lamp to our souls. We pray that today we would be reassured that the path we are walking is a real path. And we pray that you would grant to us greater insight into how to do battle. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as those who've been gloriously redeemed by grace through the person and work of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.